I was uh, reminded uh, during the meditation of uh, a passage in the uh, a, teach, uh, a, a text in the Pali Canon called the Dhammapada where Virtue is likened to the sweetest fragrance. I, I would have to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but the Buddha said something like, of all the fragrances in the world, and then lists, lists some fragrances, you know, sandalwood, and, and, and he said, virtue is the sweetest of them all. And for me, it evokes this sense that uh, <clears throat> our, our behavior radiates through the environment around us, and it's um, sweet and lovely and beautiful, or it's, um, you know, it has the opposite effect. Uh, <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but I have that. I have that same sense of of language, that it can add a dimension of um, uh, beauty, or in some cases, comfort or ease, or it can. It can arouse fear or hostility amongst people. Um, and probably not uh, not, not coincidentally, uh, this idea of right speech, of communicating effectively, uh, is part of the Buddha's teachings on uh, virtue or ethics. He puts them together in his in his framework, and both are said to uh, be significant supports for the alleviation of suffering and for attaining the goal of uh, freedom, personal freedom. So, uh, learning right speech, learning to to be a more skillful communicator um, is said to um, uh, be beneficial and uh, beneficial in the in the context of the Dharma is uh, anything that moves toward freedom anything that's said to uh, be uh, worthy of the goal worthy of the goal of uh, awakening So uh, speech in this regard is uh, is quite significant, and I mentioned earlier during my my brief introduction that you know with some regularity I I will choose to say something about right speech, and also that I observe in my own life um, that it's uh, it's 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 an ongoing practice, and it's a very subtle practice, and. You know, sometimes if you go into a room and there's a, like a candle or, a, or somebody cooks something that you like or incense and it's a really, it's a nice room to be in and 
you could be allergic to other incense or someone cooked something you didn't like and it's, that room is not so pleasant to be in. And, you know, because I've been paying attention to speech as, as part of my practice, there are these occasions when I'm, I'm leaving a group or I'm leaving even just a conversation with one person, maybe it's not a group, and I'll be driving down the road or on the subway and I have this thought, I did it again. Like I said the thing or I said it in the way that I didn't want to say it or, or out of some kind of fear. I didn't say the thing I wanted to say. And, and it's like, wow, I'm still learning how to do this. And there are other times when I'll be leaving a similar situation and will reflect on having been conscious of wanting to say something and not, or waiting quite a long time and choosing to say something at a different time, uh, or just, you know, just choosing not to say anything, or, you know, and really working much more um, constructively and intentionally with how I'm using my words and my voice in, uh, in a group setting. And, and, and sometimes I walk away and, and I can just feel the ease that I'm still carrying, leaving that encounter, uh, and noticing that there's, there's, there's a freshness or a vibrancy to it, and, and that that is something that I could have disrupted uh, had I been less skillful. Or, or perhaps even that some of that, um, the feeling of well-being or uh, success, and to use conventional language, that I'm connecting with, um, is something that really came out of my practice, something that really was cultivated. So maybe I even, maybe we even through speech will create an uplifted uh, sense of ourselves and the environment and other people. Also, in the Dhammapada, which is the, the text that I just referred to, the Buddha says that the wise are controlled in bodily action, controlled in speech and controlled in thought. They are truly well controlled. So in this uh, short three lines, the Buddha is equating wisdom with the ability to uh, work constructively, intentionally with our with our speech, also our actions and thoughts. So those who do that, or those who can do that, are considered to be to be wise, right? And, and I think that we often it seems to be a, a Western lay phenomena that the the Buddhist path is is meditation. Right? That's you know, and, and often I talk with people and they they tell me how much they're meditating or how much they're not meditating. Um, <clears throat> and so sometimes I want to say, well, how often are you being kind with your words, right? How often is anger the driving force behind what you say? Um, or how often are you being generous or patient, right? Our, our, our practice 
means many things that we identify as a practitioner implies that we will uh, bring an interest to our lives that transcends coming here on Thursday night or Saturday morning and sitting on a meditation cushion and learning to be really still. Right? There's a much broader implication. There's a, a, a sutta called the Sutta Sutta, and the Sutta Sutta um, is the sutta on, on, on what is heard, what, what is to be done with, with, with what we hear from others. Uh, and like some other suttas, this takes place at the squirrel's sanctuary <coughs> in Bamboo Grove. And um, this is a story of uh, the minister to King Magadha, Vasakara, is uh, talking to the Buddha. And <clears throat> briefly, uh, Vasakara approaches the Buddha and explains that uh, he himself is of the opinion that it, is, that it is okay to speak to others about anything that he has seen, heard, sensed, or thought. And he's, he's going to the, to the Buddha looking for some affirmation. <clears throat> and uh, he says to the Buddha, simply, I am of the view, the opinion, that when anyone speaks of what they have seen, there is no fault in that. Um, any Vasakara applies the same formula to everything he's heard, sensed, everything he's thought. And the, the Buddha replies, I do not say that everything has been that everything that has been seen should be spoken about. Nor do I say that everything has been seen should not be spoken about. So this is one of the places and this is fairly common, where the Buddha doesn't really tell us what to do. <clears throat> um, and likewise, the Buddha uses that same formula for hearing, sensing, and thinking. There's a, a couple, I think, really important teachings here that are... are uh, more comprehensive or more inclusive than just um, right speech. One of the teachings, I, I, I might say, um, reveals something about the nature of Dharma itself. The Dharma is not prescriptive. Um, there's not often um, a formulaic response this is what you do when this happens right um, because the dharma translated as truth um, is said to provide a way which can be understood as a harmonious way of being in the world um, the dharma is best understood as what's appropriate so there's a, there's a very, very high level of investigation and discernment that is involved um, in uh, learning how to respond and act in the world in a way that's skillful or wise. 
And we don't get, we, j- we can't memorize a list that the Buddha gave us that said if, if so-and-so says this to you, do this. Or if so-and-so, if you end up in this situation, do that. We don't, we don't get that kind of, uh, we don't get that kind of instruction or direction. There's no uh, seemingly single rule of thumb that applies to every situation. So, so each occasion has to be vetted for the most appropriate response. <clears throat> Sometimes kindness and generosity uh, is very soft and gentle, right? In its tonality, uh, its volume, its choice of words. And sometimes, particularly in the context of disrupting delusion or habits or ignorance, um, kindness and generosity can be very cutting, very bold, very loud. Sometimes it has to be for it to be heard or for it to be seen. Spiritual teachers for thousands of years have demonstrated this and um, to the acceptance or confusion, uh, depending on the case of students, um, been met with various responses, right? Sometimes, um, sometimes we want um, people who are responsible for uh, wisdom teachings to always make us feel safe, allow us, help us feel safe and comfortable. And hopefully, 80 or 90% of the time, that's, that is happening. <clears throat> and if it does, within the context of safe or trusting relationships, also hopefully, uh, spiritual friends, spiritual teachers, <clears throat> even psychotherapists, hopefully they are not um, perpetuating a situation, a relational existence that's always comfortable because changing our conditioning, changing how we think about ourselves and view the world and behave uh, is, puts us at times um, in stages of discomfort where we're bumping up our, 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 against our sense of self. And so, if you will, our, our pride in a conventional sense is hurt. Um, and from that often comes awareness and humility and with that, we can be more free and we can, we can often be much more skillful in our relationships. So one Dharma teaching that, again, I think transcends the, 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 the conversation of right speech <clears throat> that is contained within the Buddha's non-answer answer is that the Dharma is not prescriptive and that two skillful and unskillful are often the gauge for this discernment uh, that I'm pointing out that the Buddha is pointing out so the so instead of <clears throat> instead of giving us a set of protocols I've been searching for this word and I couldn't come up with it. Uh, to apply in any given situation, and imagine how many lists we would have to have. 
the Buddha basically said, assess whether the thought, the word, the thing you say, or the action, assess whether it will be skillful or unskillful. And there's two ways we do that. One is we gauge our intention. Am I saying what I'm going to say so that this person suffers less in their life? Or am I saying this because I know it'll drive a sharp knife in their heart and kind of, I'll get them back for that thing that I feel like they did to me. So what's the intention? Why are we saying what we're saying? And secondly, uh, what do we think the outcome might be? Now, this is tricky because we don't know. We don't, we don't always. So, so, so the Dharma then, being in relationship with others, um, working with others, um, having a job and colleagues, living a relational life, uh, has us trying all these things that may or may not work. And we, we kind of, we take an inventory over time and we learn what's skillful and what's not skillful. So the Buddha is saying, observe what increases and decreases suffering. In, 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 in the, and through this, we build a kind of working knowledge of or vocabulary of skillful. What works, what doesn't work. And that always pertains to both us and other people. So this is something that I find really inclusive about um, Buddhist psychology and Buddhist practices is that we're, we're invited to uh, consider ourselves just as much as others and others just as much as our, I don't see I don't see an imbalance there. Uh, and, I, and I do think that both are equally important. How we take care of ourselves will directly impact others around us. And how we relate to others affects them, of course, and also us. I won't be able to share with you all of the teachings on on right speech because there are so many of them that we would need a workshop environment or a, we would need a week-long class maybe like a residential program uh, every now and again I feel that I've collected all the right speech teachings and I, I keep them in a file and and I keep coming across passages that I haven't 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 ever read um, so the file is getting bigger and bigger and so this, this talk is probably one of, one of many, and, and I will tonight share with you a few central and very distinct uh, uh, teachings that, that really stand alone. Um, the first teaching in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is one of the collections where the, where the core teaching stories, the suttas, are, are, are stored, are collected, we get a list uh, from the Buddha uh, that describes what is worth and not worth saying. And this list does get a bit more specific. It, it will probably raise some questions too, again, because it, 
it uh, allows us to interpret for ourselves. Um, and there are three simple principles. He says, um, discern whether a statement is true or not. So if something is true, it's okay to say. That's one. As long as B, it is beneficial. In C, as long as it is pleasing to others. So if something is true, beneficial, and pleasing, feel free to say what you want to say. So does anybody see a problem with this model? Correct. That's the yes. So <clears throat> we might have a different opinion regarding what is true. So that's why I call these cautions. Maybe caution is better than problem. Um, now, the idea of, that something might be beneficial uh, gets gets very, very interesting because uh, I might think something is beneficial to you and you could easily disagree. I could think something is beneficial and be wrong, right? When we see beneficial, the English word uh, beneficial translated from the Pali, um, we're, we're, we're we're seeing the Buddha articulate um, that things are are worthy if they lead to the goal, if they lead to the final goal of nibbana. So, so, so that's the context within which we uh, consider if something is beneficial or not. Um, does saying something expose the truth of conditioning and how things work so that we can see more clearly and make better choices. That's beneficial. And if we, and again, we could be right or wrong and we don't always get it right, but if we think um, that these words will be pleasant enough, pleasing enough, um, to be accepted by the other person, well, just say it. Just, just do it. Or if, if, if I'm talking about speech right now, but um, you know, if it's an action, just do it. And the Buddha, however, uh, leaves open the possibility of, that if something is unpleasant, unwanted, uh, <clears throat> not endearing, that we might still say it. Uh, but he goes on to explain that the timing of it is critical. Right? Um, and I would, I would, from a contemporary perspective, I might add to that or just elaborate a little bit and say that maybe sometimes <coughs> if we think we might be communicating something that would be really uncomfortable, maybe we ask permission first. So maybe that could be a new uh, 
addition to the uh, the recommendation the Buddha gave us to to um, try to find the right timing to share information that could be hard to hear. Notice that in this teaching, there is no consideration given to the possibility that something could be untrue and beneficial. So I I really like the simplicity of this teaching um, with its uh, its sensibility uh, and uh, three principles that are that are pretty easy to remember, and so I would offer this as a as a practice, uh, particularly because it's it's we get these long lists sometimes in the Dharma, and they're 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 hard to you know we have to like walk around with note cards in every pocket to you know pull out the right note card to see what I'm supposed to do now. But if you can remember this short list, is it true? Is it beneficial? Um, is it sometimes we hear is it sweet to the ear? Right? So that can be your, your working framework as you begin to explore this idea of right speech. Right, by the way, Sama in Pali, um, I, like to def- I, I like to translate as harmonious. So that which creates harmony, not discord, not pain, not fear, not contention. Um, and then if something is not going to be uh, appealing to the ear or to the ego, to the self, uh, then, then, then we're in the practice of uh, negotiating the timing and how, like, how do we do that? In the pursuit of greater self-awareness and on the path to liberation or freedom from our conditioning, freedom from suffering, freedom from dukkha, we are confronted with the task of becoming aware of our habits, including the ways we perceive and view ourselves and others, in changing the aspects of our conditioning that are unskillful which is to say rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion or ignorance. Sometimes seeing this for ourselves or having it pointed out by others is uncomfortable, disagreeable, and unpleasant. Yet if we were to avoid the opportunities, our greed, aversion, and delusion would stand a greater likelihood of being intact. I have just a couple examples. Um, uh, 
over the the past couple of years, I've been in a lot of uh, all white groups doing uh, racial literacy training or um, uh, racially diverse groups doing um, uh, diversity training. And one of the things that happens in those environments is um, white privilege and racialized views get pointed out, usually fairly, uh, fairly easily. Um, and uh, what Robin, one writer, Robin D'Angelo, calls um, a white fragility tends to show up very, very quickly for usually about 50 to 75% of the white people in the, in the room. That number decreases over time, typically, as people do more and more of this, this kind of training. Um, and the, this, this, this white fragility is a, is a kind of defense that reveals what we often call the good-bad binary, which is a view. And the, the good-bad binary as a view is a view that we have, many of us, have inherited from our culture, which is that uh, racism is bad. That's a good view. Racism is bad. And racism is something that is done by bad people. Bad people are racist. So, therefore, if I'm being taught how certain ways of seeing or assessing situations and related in relating to them are are born of the viewer perspective that I've inherited as a white person and that they are sometimes uh, discriminating. If I also believe in the good-bad binary, then I'm now a bad person. And I might reject that view because I don't see myself as a bad person. And if I reject that view, that new logic that is being presented, it will be harder for me to see and change prejudices that I have that are rooted in the simple fact that I grew up in a white body and have the experience of a white person. I was, I was, I got off the red line in Harvard Square and I, I came, I exited in a place that I've never exited. I just, I didn't walk out of the subway in the same way and I can't tell you how many hundreds, maybe thousands of times I've exited since high school, 25 years, the red line in Central Square. And as soon as I got on the sidewalk, I immediately turned to cross the street so that I could walk here the same way I always do. And I, this might sound really mundane, but I, I, in the moment I saw it really as like a, almost like an insult, like a little Dharma, you know, the Dharma student in me was like, oh wow, look at this, this is so interesting. I caught myself w- crossing the street to walk here on the same side of the street I always walk on. And I, had the, and I saw it and I said, well, what would it be like to walk here on the other side of the street? So I stayed on the side of the street that I was on. And it's probably been 25 years that I've been walking around Harvard Square. And I was walking down, not the sidewalk on this side of the street, but the sidewalk on the other. 
And I, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I'm pretty sure that I've never walked from the subway to here in this direction on that side of the street. And at a certain point, I was looking up at the buildings and my, that view was confirmed because I was seeing things, I was seeing the street from, a, from an angle that I've never seen from. And I got to a building and, and I looked up and, and it was, it was just rows and rows, it looked like a hotel and I had never, I had only walked by the first floor of it and I, I couldn't, and there were all these people like somewhere like sitting in front of the window and others were cooking and looked like someone there might, you know, someone might have been taking a shower, the window was all frosted and I couldn't tell whether it was a dorm building or apartments. And I just, I realized that I had never, I had never seen that building. Never. In my, in the last 25 years. Um, didn't know, you know, just never saw it. Didn't know all those people were living there. And it dawned me that that's, that's, that's what Dharma practice is like. You know, it's like Dharma practice is finding a way to get to the other side of the street. So we can see all the things that are always there. But we just can't see them. I mean, that apartment, that, I can tell you right now, that apartment building is 100 years old. Never saw it, right? So, <clears throat> anytime we are defended, we can see in the action of defense, which usually has some denial, anger, resentment, uh, the making of the self, the agent that both creates and experiences dukkha, distress, suffering. In other words, something might be unpleasant to hear, but worth hearing. Just this week, uh, see today's Thursday, this week, uh, innumerable uh, Iranians and Iranian-born Americans were, uh, and I don't know if they still are, uh, were detained um, at, all over, but predominantly uh, at Canadian uh, checkpoints. And... uh, I'm not an attorney, uh, and I have strong left-leaning biases, put that out there, and I'm pretty sure, and by most journalistic accounts, uh, these uh, detentions were illegal uh, and violated basic human rights. And one woman who I'm aware of, and maybe now there have been others, and I may not be able to pronounce her name right, Negai or Nega Hekmati, a 30 year old um, mother of two children uh, who was detained for about five hours, uh, chose to, uh, on the way back from a family vacation, uh, and she is an American citizen. Um, she came out shortly thereafter and put a fair amount of effort and time and energy 
into speaking about her experience in detention um, <coughs> as uh, an Iranian-American woman and talked a lot about how her children were affected, how, how afraid, how scared her children were. Her children, uh, I think she said, were uh, you know, conveyed that they were afraid that you know, they would be separated from their parents. Um, and there are a lot of people who, who, who did not want this woman to speak out and were interested in, in silencing her. And uh, of course, you know, I, I'm using one example of, of so many uh, like examples where there is a, um, a, a system in place that does function often constructively to silence certain people and where speaking the truth of what happened uh, might be, uh, I don't want to say unpleasing, but might, might disrupt certain agendas, uh, but it's clearly beneficial. Um, and so this is a, obviously a, a social justice-related example, as is uh, my, my example from... Uh, you know, sort of my my racial awareness example, but even in you know just in in in, in our day to day interactions, you know, particularly at work with colleagues or in intimate relationships, like um, how does this play out? Where do we uh, find ourselves wanting to speak to something that feels important to us, but uh, but we don't? Um, Likewise, where do we find ourselves irritated where we're communicating in a way to people uh, who we care about and who we want to feel safe and who are friends of ours and uh, we might not convey that the care that we actually have for them. Um, I feel like you know, there's, uh, we could talk all night about just just working with our, our our closest friends or our partners in life, and and um, you know how often uh, do we operate in the in the in the ninety to a hundred percentile of truth telling uh, with good timing, and and I think that it's uh, doing so is is one of the uh, it's sort of the high art of relational life. I think it's one of the things that allows our relationships to to sustain and, and last for a very long time. I don't know about you, but in my experience, being in close relationships with people is, is not um, a place where not avoiding communicating things that are uncomfortable uh, is sustainable. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't work. So somehow we have to learn how to communicate. So how do we understand a little bit better the value of speaking about what might be unpleasant and or hearing something, of course, if we're on the other end of it, hearing something that might be unpleasant? Well, first, as I mentioned earlier, we have to understand what the Buddha meant by beneficial and unbeneficial. Uh, something that's unbeneficial is not connected to the goal. When we see this notion of the goal, again, we're talking about the eradication of distress and suffering. Uh, therefore, what is beneficial is what is connected to the goal. 
So to be liberated, we must either ourselves become aware of or have pointed out to us by others, by friends, by the practice itself. Meditation does this pointing out. Sometimes we don't need another human being. The meditation practice does the pointing out. To be liberated, we must either ourselves become aware of or have pointed out to us all of the views, habits, and actions that are unskillful and unbeneficial that are causing harm and not leading to the goal of freedom, to liberation. In my experience, I have found three things to be incredibly helpful in achieving this kind of liberative awareness. Um, Incredibly helpful and often uncomfortable. One is the teacher-student relationship. Two, sangha, community. Getting to know people and letting, truly letting them into your life. Um, letting people know you. Um, very, very difficult for me. It's easier now. Um, very, I've told stories about this. I don't think I have in a while. Um, but when I first came to Buddhist practice and was going to settings like this and meditating with groups of people um, I don't think I really let anybody know who I was both because I would come and leave like come right before a program started and leave right away Um, but because in my exchanges with people I didn't know how to be genuine or authentic Uh, I I had a, a awkward presence that was either uh closed or posturing and so I was never I couldn't figure out how to be real with anybody, and so people, no one knew me. I didn't. I didn't have uh, uh, the kinds of real, and, which protected me in some way. I probably wasn't ready to to be known more. Um, but those relationships didn't fundamentally uh, help me uh, change my conditioning at all, right? So the teacher-student relationship I have found to be very helpful. Um, community, letting, you know, letting, uh, you know, and it's different for everybody. And for some people it's, it's easy. For other people it takes a very long time. Uh, but being open to that, I think, has a high value. Um, one, of the, one of the hardest parts of being, uh, I'm thinking back to like the first five or ten years, one of the hardest parts of my Dharma practice was going to lunch with people during Dharma programs. <laughs> that was so hard. Because it was unstructured and social, and going to a, a, a meditation center, a Dharma center, uh, I could mostly hear Dharma talks, ask a few questions that were not in a conversational, um, you know, or were. You know, there's a, there was sort of a formulaic way of doing that uh, that I was comfortable with. Um, and it was mostly silent. And the third category is uh, uh, Kalyanamitas, or spiritual friends. Uh, these are certain people who we establish closer ties to. We don't become really close with everybody in the Sangha. And that's, uh, that's appropriate. Um, but there are certain people that that we might uh, take greater risk with, in a sense, and be, become over time closer to. We have different uh, and closer ties with them. 
And in these relationships, we can share together a higher degree of both transparency and accountability. Uh, And it can really fuel our practice. So the the Buddha has his own um, list uh, to help us when we do speak. So again, a lot of this practice is around whether we speak or not, and what are we going to say, right? And so the, the, the Buddha offers some guidance that uh, we might call the five keys to right speech. And it is written, uh, practitioners, that's us, A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Blameless. We we are blameless when our intentions are good. Right? We tend to feel like we're blameless if we never make a mistake. But that's not what the Buddha said. The Buddha said you're blameless if your intentions are good. You're still going to make mistakes. The spirit of Dharma practice is to really become interested in the mistakes. Right? And just see it. Oh, yeah, see, that's what happened. That's that thing I tend to do when I'm under a certain kind of stress. And I use language in this way, or I avoid certain people or certain situations. So, okay. Right? So, this is sort of a. Understanding that that's complex and conditioned and uh, it's complicated, you know. Being a human being is complicated. So, you know, kind to ourselves. And at the same time, we are interested in trying to do it differently next time. So, what are these five factors? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. Four, it is spoken beneficially. It is spoken truly with the intention to support or help. And it is spoken with a mind of goodwill. It it comes from a place of benevolence. So just in that alone, when we're triggered and really upset, or if we're just feeling like, maybe even just really compressed for time and we're feeling like we've got a knot in our throat, we're really anxious, and, you know, there's only one minute left in this conversation, but we have like 15 things we want to say, and we know that we always bring this, this really uh, quick and heightened sort of panicked energy to something. We just, we see it. We say, like, I do that all the time. You know, I'm... I'm operating from a place of anxiety or I'm operating from a place of fear or I'm operating from a place of anger right so are we in a are we in a are we in a uh, a position to act with affection and friendliness or, or benevolence and then so if not well we have the teaching on timing already he already gave us that teaching we can just wait or find another way of doing it
So in another passage titled Gotama's Right Speech, it is said, Abandoning false speech, the ascetic Gotama, the Buddha, dwells refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Not a deceiver of the world. This notion of not being a deceiver implies that we do not contribute to greed, aversion. The difference is that sometimes our our fear or our selfishness or our ignorance um, uh, colludes or perpetuates delusion and ignorance. Right, so we're contributing. I think this points to a very refined and challenging place within our own lives and within any relational practice. The Dharma encourages us to speak what is sometimes unappealing to the ear, specifically because it challenges our sense of self, our ego. Yet it is often these very things that can break through our delusion and help us achieve greater personal freedom while being kinder, more generous, and more skillful in relationship to others. In this way, speech is part of helping to create a culture of wisdom in place of a culture of ignorance and denial. And I I think it's this notion of creating a culture of wisdom that has us not being a deceiver of the world. And I'll close with another short passage from the suttas, from the Samyutta Nikaya. The fool thinks one has won a battle when one bullies with harsh speech, but knowing how to be forbearing alone makes one victorious. The fool thinks one has won a battle when one bullies with harsh speech. But knowing how to be forbearing alone makes one victorious. <clears throat>